This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Okay, um, first of all, I want to thank everyone for coming out. Um, It's more important than ever for people, particularly in the United States, to be paying attention to social struggles in China, given the dark clouds of geopolitical conflict that's emerging between these two countries, and the tendency, I think, to want to buy into these nationalist framings uh, that we see on both sides of the Pacific. So it's extremely important for us to have these regular reminders that capitalism is a global system that oppresses and exploits all people. There are important differences, but drawing drawing forms of identification and solidarity, I think, is key to socialist struggle. What I want to talk about today is based on a piece that I wrote for the Boston Review, which is going to be coming out uh, pretty soon, and that article is actually an extension of a book that I wrote, which, which came out earlier this year, called The Organization of People. Now, in this article, I'm doing two things that I want to briefly go over today. The first is to link struggles against the closed loop system of management that emerged uh, during the lockdowns in 2022 uh, to earlier realms, uh, earlier struggles in the realm of social reproduction that go back at least to the 1990s by rural to urban migrant workers in China. And the second thing that I do, which is frankly not fully fleshed out, but I still think is, is an important provocation, is to situate these struggles within China as part of global struggles by migrants against borders and bordering practices and the whole system of racialized exploitation and dispossession out of which they emerge. Now, dealing with the first issue requires some familiarity with China's subnational citizenship regime, and I'm not going to assume this level of knowledge, so I just want to give a little bit of background. Um, But the subnational citizenship regime produces the dehumanized and highly exploitable workforce that powers global supply chains. China's internal migrants I think of as the social foundation uh, that ensures the profitability of global corporations, including Apple, uh, Amazon, Walmart, and you know many other companies around the world. So how is this population produced? The key institution that we need to understand is called HUCO, or the Household Registration System. And what HUCO does is it links the provision of social services to a particular place, such that if you leave your place of registration, you forsake guaranteed access to social services, including education, healthcare, subsidized housing, pensions, etc. I believe that the central social contradiction in China's capitalist boom is that over the past 40 years, China has gone about creating a national labor market, which didn't exist, right? In the 1970s, there's no labor market. So they go about very systematically creating a national labor market, but social citizenship continues to be structured at the level of the city. And so what that means is that you have roughly 300 million people who are living out of place, who have to leave their hometown for work. It's the only way that they can survive in a capitalist society. 
And by doing so, they forsake their rights to these social services. Now, obviously, China is a, a vast country. This we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Things are different in different places. But there are important commonalities, certainly across the megacities, uh, which attract the majority of these rural to urban migrants. So let me first talk about these traditional struggles to secure social reproduction that go back at least to the 1990s. And I'm going to focus here on the education, which is what I mostly talk about so if we look at education, the children of these rural migrant workers oftentimes are excluded from public education in their receiving students. Um, this is a huge problem, obviously at the individual level, but also at the social level, because you have an aging society, which means migrants are older, they're more likely to have children, and they are increasingly less likely to want to go back to the countryside. Many of them have very little experience living in the countryside, they do not know how to farm, and culturally there's, you know, there's also been a major shift towards the city. So there's various kinds of work workarounds. The most popular thing that migrant families will do is to leave their children in the countryside and have grandparents and other extended, uh, extended family look after the children. And China has tens of millions of so-called left-behind children who are living either without one or both. Up, you You're having a hard time here. There we go. So, um, so that's one option. That's far and away the most popular one. The other option is that they can try to bring their children with them to the city, and that has been increasing in popularity. Some of these children will be able to get into public schools, but many don't, and that's particularly true for the children uh, of working class kids for all sorts of reasons that I can get to into Q&A if folks are interested. One workaround that migrant communities in cities have, have pursued over the past 30 or so years uh, is to set up these informal schools for the children of migrants. Um, some of them are actually pretty rapacious, profit-oriented businesses um, and should certainly not be valorized, but many of them are what they refer to as like public interest or nonprofit schools and are really trying their best within these institu institutional gaps to provide decent services to communities that have been left out of the public system. Um, they face many, these schools face many challenges. They're you know, generally fully privatized and they're serving the working class community, so they don't have a lot of resources. Um, they oftentimes face the threat of demolition during the process of urban redevelopment, and of course Chinese cities have been completely remade over the last 30 years. Um, but these are a strong indicator of migrants trying to bring their spaces of work closer to their spaces of social life. To put this somewhat more abstractly, they're trying to bring their spaces of production of work and social reproduction into relative proximity, and that idea of relative proximity is important. Let's now fast forward to the closed loop. It's 2022, we've already had a couple of years of the pandemic. This technology of governing human movement comes out of the Beijing Olympics, where it was first uh, realized, though it may, that Beijing Olympics closed loop may have actually been inspired by the NBA bubble, for those of you who are NBA fans, uh, which, which the United States first developed in 2020. So it's, it's an interesting indicator of the way that these governance technologies circulate uh, globally. The basic idea in the closed loop is that you very strictly limit what moves in and out of the space. So generally people go into the loop and they cannot come out until whatever activity they're engaged in is completed. And they're strict policing of all of the things that are, that are coming in and it's mostly just whatever supplies they need for, uh, for that work. In the context, of course, of the pandemic, the idea is to radically demobilize people while still allowing for the circulation of capital. So spring of 2022, um, 
We have uh, the outbreak in Shanghai. This is the worst outbreak that China has seen since Wuhan. Uh, folks may be somewhat familiar with what happens there. There are very severe lockdowns that last, in some cases, uh, more than two months. Um, but in contrast to the, the original lockdown in Wuhan, the government wants people to keep working. And that's a really big difference. There are two arrangements that I think of as closed loops. The first one is something that Americans will be familiar with, which is work from home, right? Um, so the idea is you're not allowed to leave your home, but you have to continue to work. Work from home in China, in the Shanghai lockdown at least, was much more strictly enforced than anything Americans know. In some cases, people were literally locked into their apartments um, against their will. Um, the second closed loop, which is the government actually refers to, that's just the official government terminology, I think of it as not um, work from home, but live from work. So what you do, and this is mostly appears in manufacturing, is workers are brought into the factory and they're told that they're not allowed to leave until the pandemic is under control, until the outbreak is under control. And so in some cases this happened for a very long time, uh, more than two months in some cases. Um, so to the extent that you want to have a life, it has to happen within the workplace. That includes eating, people sleeping on the shop floor, to your probably not doing a lot of interesting socializing, um, but to the extent that you are, it's happening within the workplace. This is implemented in hundreds of key firms in Shanghai, um, including those that are very important to global production. Um, it was implemented in the Tesla factory, um, which is their only factory uh, outside of the US. There's one in Germany and one in China. Um, uh, and the Quanta factory, which is one of Apple's uh, key suppliers. Quanta actually, interestingly, supplies Tesla. The closed loop system generated intense resistance, and the Quanta factory is the best known example. There were two separate riots that took place there. The exact sequence of events is a little bit difficult to, to un unwind. Um, censorship, of course, is very pervasive, um, but there, there were a number of grievances, including lack of access to decent food, uh, excessive testing, which is a, a grievance that many Chinese people share, um, overwork, uh, and, uh, and concerns about the housing as well. But, but the bottom line was very clear, and you can go and watch the videos of these riots. People had had it with, with, with living uh, at the workplace. There's all kinds of smaller instances of resistance against uh, these clo closed-loop systems, many of which have been captured on, on video. Um, uh, people fighting with the so-called big whites, which are the, the people in the white hazmat suits who are the, the sort of uh, tasked with enforcing the, the lockdowns. Uh, the most famous one, perhaps, is a 95-year-old woman who fought off six cops with her cane. It was sort of, sort of heroic, and she became an instant uh, internet celebrity. Um, so, so, so this is the resistance against the closed loop. What is, what are the connections between these two different moments that I've just explained? So, for migrant workers, the spaces of work and life have been spatially separate. Right? It means that they cannot live with their children or with their communities. Or if they do, it means, act, it means forsaking access to public services. And so informal schools, as well as informal housing arrangements, which are quite pervasive, is one effort to carve out social life in these cities, which are the only place where they can find employment. In the second case, in the resistance to the closed loop, it's the exact inverse, in that the spaces of work and life have been superimposed. right? And that, too, is untenable. So there's a, a sort of a common demand, which is for the relative proximity of spaces of work and life. You don't want them right on top of each other, and you don't want them on opposite sides of the country. It's kind of a, a Goldilocks problem. Um, <clears throat> finally, I want to talk a little bit about uh, linkages to struggle, struggles for borders uh, globally. 
Um, and, and I'd be very interested in hearing from, from all of you guys what you, what you make of this. But the first thing is to point out something that I think is generally appreciated now, which is that bordering practices extend far beyond the physical national borders and involve a whole series of institutions of policing, of incarceration, as well as differential access to means of social reproduction. And that is just as true in, in the US or Europe uh, as it is in China. In Euro-America, again, race is the key social category that allows for states to de deploy various kinds um, of, uh, of, of violence in the production of a subjugated population, which can then be subjected to forms of dispossession and exploitation that would be deemed unacceptable for, for white people. In China, it's very different, right? Because the, the migrants that we're talking about are national citizens of the PRC. They're overwhelmingly, although not exclusively, from the dominant race, the Han, which constitutes 92% of the population. But we see these subnational bordering practices inserting a race-like divide into the Han race, rendering rural people here, rather than racialized people, as relatively disposable and without access um, adequate access to the means of social reproduction. So the practical conclusion to all of this is that there is, I think, a common interest in China as in the United States and beyond of realizing a specifically socialist freedom of movement. And one, of course, that has to be different from a, a neoliberal conception uh, of freedom of movement, right? The neoliberals are fine with freedom of, of, of like going to seek employment, right? Milton Friedman did not, was not a fan of borders either. The point should, should be that people should be free to move anywhere um, and that wherever they end up, they should have the right not only to seek employment, which is the thinnest of all freedoms, but the right to live, uh, to access means of social reproduction um, that will allow them to enjoy a uh, materially secure and socially dignified existence. And I think that this is just as true in China uh, as it is anywhere else. Thank you. Second panelist, um, my name um, for this event is Hu Yao, um, and I kind of want to start it by just introducing myself a bit. Um, I'm a graduate student in anthropology in the U.S. right now, um, but I started off working with labor NGOs in Guangzhou and Shenzhen in the Pu River Delta in the south of China back in 2019. Um, and since returning to the U.S., I've been working with uh, one of which still in Shenzhen, remotely. And another engagement I have in China, another engagement I have in China, um, is I work with um, students, mostly high school and college students, um, in different parts of China. Um, and we provide um, civil arts education courses in different formats. And the hope of engaging in civic education and uh, fostering critical um, critical thinking um, in the Chinese youth. And before all of that, um, my family or I actually um, moved from the rural parts of China in Anhui. My parents are from like two different villages in the same small city um, in Anhui, um, and they they were migrant workers. 
So they moved down south to Guangzhou, where I was born and raised. Um, and that was really the root of where my interest in labor and how I got involved really started. Because a lot of my relatives are still workers, and they're barred from the very same system that I was talking about, the hukou system. And they're still um, rural citizens living in cities and working a, and having a precarious life. So what I want to share with you all today really stems from my own background. Um, and I want to give some concrete stories and examples of what happened in the past few years, um, my um, involvement in China, and what I've seen, what's happening on the ground with the organizers I'm working with in China. So um, I have to admit, I was very late to the movement. It was like 2019, and everyone I worked with on the ground in Guangzhou, first of all, they were like, oh, everything collapsed before you came here, and we're the only people working here. I'm so sorry you have to like, um, like go through the daily pressures of civilians, and we have Guobao, um, the national security uh, police, everything like checking on us. Um, and the very same organization in Guangzhou I worked with uh, was actually forced to close that summer, and we were all like disbanded, and we were all sent home. Um, but that was the question, right? That when political crackdown um, happens, which um, happens very often um, in China and everyone and everywhere else, um, we're faced with the questions around what do we want to restore? Um, we're faced with the question of um, reconstruction. And there's actually more space for experimentation. And um, we were able to have more attempts and we were able to come together, the, the remaining people and the young people like me, um, and we wanted to deal with the question of, so now what? Uh, what could we do in this environment, um, in this increasingly authoritarian China, um, and with the migrant workers' communities there? So, um, first and foremost, I want to say that NGOs and grassroots efforts in China, um, they still exist. And they're adjusting to a more authoritarian environment. So um, there's definitely the element of fear playing that. Um, the, the crackdown, waves of crackdown on um, labor NGOs, on feminists, on uh, human rights lawyers, and um, journalists, and other people definitely send a chilling effects. But it's also out of um, necessity because of the everyday experience of civilians and being watched um, and this like lo their local global constantly checking on them. That was basically the, the everyday fear or even self-censorship <laughs> we live with. Um, so, um, therefore, we actually see um, recent attempts to um, shift from a more kind of agitation style of labor organizing towards a more service-oriented and a, even a softer mode of um, like advocacy, um, and uh, especially labor organizing. Um, so for example, one of the NGOs I work with, um, this one in Shenzhen, um, they've been, they, for like, I would say before 2017, 
um, they were uh, organizing this huge, like massive, um, war uh, women workers kind of gala, like a festival, and where these women from the same neighborhood, from the, this community, where this labor NGO worked with, they would um, go on the stage, they would uh, perform their monologues, um, sing together, dance together. They even did a fundraiser for. Um, for um, one of the fellow workers who was in need of mental health support, so they were fundraising for uh, a fellow women worker in the community. Um, and, and kind of up until then, they were still able to do kind of like this collective in, uh, like expression of uh, women worker and what does being worker mean in China and then especially the South um, in Shenzhen, where lots of factories locate. Um, but um, and there were and there were also like legal assistance and more of a um, like work-related issues. They were more on like individual basis. That kind of changed towards a more softer mode of engagement with the workers. So they were not allowed to put together um, any events like that anymore. Um, of course, um, and they were also. Um, uh, but but actually, but the very same context that I was talking about, they were able to shift the focus of women um, as workers toward the more like women as um, having um, a more comprehensive experience living in the city. So they have children now. A lot of the that generation of workers, they they have families now in the city, and they're faced with the question of how do we actually live together in the city. Um, how do we want to go about the lives when all these barriers, not only wage-related, but also what about the dignity of living in the city? How do we secure a future for our kids who are actively being channeled into vocational schools and becoming the next generation of precarious labor, basically? Um, so that's where these more like service-oriented social work labor NGOs came in. Um, some, like, may maybe you will ask, um, if, if, are they still the very same labor NGOs that they claim to be uh, since they shifted that focus from workers towards um, women and um, children and, and workers' families? Uh, I, I would say that wasn't a failed attempt because um, with how environment has become um, more um, more closely monitored, um, and um, especially NGOs, um, I think they were still successful in um, building a collective women workers identity. So I've seen um, women who are much older than I am, and they were like sharing with me how they just decided not to leave this neighborhood and stay with um, other fellow women because of the, the NGO, because they needed that kind of solidarity and friendship and community. Um, even though they know like outside of that, um, things are getting shitty, and, and, but they still wanted to keep that um, kind of um, like support in a small community, which is still valuable, um, and I would say a, it's, it's like a possibility for a larger kind of um, even feminist view of um, 
were her solidarity. And another surviving strategy I've observed uh, was the intentional selection of collaborators and, um, and affiliates in these labor NGOs. In a growing, like in a context of growing nationalism um, and civilians. So uh, as part of the advocacy work I'm doing with them um, remotely, uh, I was able to be part of a public facing writing project with this NGO in Shenzhen. Um, and um, by the time we wrap up all the writings about women's experiences and how difficult it was to navigate the hukou system and get their children to stay with them, and this kind of like forced separation between their children and their work life and um, navigating the bureaucracy and this like intentionally created barriers in the city. Um, Wow, showed up, of course, um, and they uh, we had this meeting about oh what what to do right now. Uh, basically, they didn't want us to publish them because we want to publish it through the press, and um, it's like just raising awareness. It's not like we're talking about specific policy or attacking certain um, policies or laws. Um, but they didn't want us to do that. And when they were going through, like, oh, who's in this group chat? Who's this in this team writing this stuff? My name stood up, and because I'm based in the U.S. So yeah, of course, they would be to expect of me being the quote-unquote Chinese spy, right? And <laughs> um, and but um, but it didn't become an issue at the end. Um, they were going through like what I did and what the other people, who the other people are in the team, and actually. Um, because of the presence of two Chinese professors working in Chinese universities, that wasn't an issue for me. So the presence of like Chinese um, in working within the system actually diluted like my my presence as kind of like this foreign interference, quote unquote, and and like this U.S. backed figure. Um, so that's like very upsetting because. Um, there's this like growing tension between the U.S. and China, and there's um, not so much space for this kind of collaboration, and they have to navigate like potential crackdown on them, but also like they, they have to navigate a potential crackdown because of something they actually did, but also now they have to face this like perceived affinity with the West, with the outside, um, even though like I'm I'm Chinese. Um, yeah, so that's becoming an everyday pressure for organizers on the ground. Um, and the last point I want to raise is, um, in addition to um, providing services to workers and doing advocacy work, um, education is where lots of organizers are channeling their energy into in China right now. It's not yet a highly contentious field, so to speak, um, in, uh, in the eyes of the authorities. And there were there were actually a lot of former like investigative journalists, lawyers, and organizers are um, are um, organizing with um, migrant children and and teenagers. So uh, one example I will give is the organization um, I was involved with. Um, they um, they they were there were also other organizations um, basically. Providing like summer camps and also and even like establishing these like community centers next to vocational schools 
where lots of the children are being um, basically because of the policies um, that Eli said. In my answer in Q and A, um, they were they had to they either have to go back to their hometown to, for further education, or they stay in the city with their parents um, and and go to vocational schools, not public, and they have to pay um, and 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 go into the labor market basically. Um, and the children I was working with, they're actually also turning teenagers. We were in this. Um, theater workshop talking about and writing about what's the experiences of growing up and looking at like just watching your parents um, coming back to work late at night and get up early in the morning um, and, and thinking about like oh now I have to graduate and will I become them in the future? Yeah, that was a question lots of them were thinking about. That was an awakening moment, right? Um, and they were talking about how they don't want to do banjuan, like for the rendering speaking um, audience here. They don't want to be carrying the bricks, like kind of like a metaphor of doing the labor work, the construction work. Um, they don't want to be da gong mei, like the um, the working like kind of like a feminine figure of like the women workers. Um, and um, and how they just refuse to become the next generation, but they they're kind of starting to have this awareness of the situation they're in, and that um, like a class consciousness of what's happening around them and watching their parents. Um, so the question many of the organizers I work with now face is: um, Can there be uh, can the subaltern migrant youth possibly build a culture of resistance that will bring more light to future resistance and efforts in China, specifically with migrant worker communities. Um, that's something, yeah, I would like to see and um, engage more with in the future. Before I talk, I want to mention because actually we, I also, uh, we, all, we all use different, uh, no real names, so please don't take photos because it's kind of sensitive for us. So yeah, thank you for understanding. And so, so before to talk, so I want to talk about my background. So actually, I was moved to uh, US uh, recently, and previously I was uh, labor organizing in China. So I've been working labor NGO or labor movement for about a decade uh, in China, back in China. And so basically, I was right now even a graduate student in the U.S. But actually, that was because I was kicked out of China. I was unable to continue to organizing. Uh, so have to be here. So when talking about China, it's always a very sad story, but also a very powerful, powerful story for me. So I will share some understanding of my experience as a labor organizer in the movement. And so, yeah, remind me if I talk too much. So, so I mean, uh, talking about labor struggles, so we can uh, look back into uh, uh, 30 years ago, so when China opened economy, and then many workers, when many workers had to become migrant workers, and then moved to city to work for the, you know, work for the uh, foreign direct, direct investment, and so at that time, uh, you can see the, you know, the working, you know, the, because most of US company and, you know, 
coming in from global north, they move China, make move to China because of cheap labor. So at the time, the huge demand of labor in the city, and also China didn't didn't have a, like uh, uh, sufficient uh, uh, legal uh, system for workers' right protection. So actually, this they force a huge amount of population of cheap labor in in, in, in China. So. So this creates a lot, so many attention, so many, uh, uh, so so many tension between uh, the workers and the uh, and the uh, and the department uh, in the city. I mean the, the government and also the, the the company. So so the workers are facing so many uh exploitation, like overtime, like uh, even didn't have a contract. The 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 forced labor law in China was only introduced in the 1995. You know, it's very recently, and also. The labor contract law was introduced in 2007. You know, it's very recently, and the social social insurance social security law was introduced in 2011, which is very recently actually. So actually, in China, the, so you can see that many conflict like the worker facing overtime, uh, uh, and wage theft, no legal no legal contract, and no any, I mean, really functional uh, legal procedure, uh, labor dispute procedure. Uh, in the government, so you can see so many tension and worker, they they want to they just they want to survive in the city, and so what can what, what will happen? So you don't have a sufficient uh, legal system for workers, and also you can see the government, the whole entire system was very poor. Uh, the company poor company because they want local government one more benefit, one more tax, so they are very scared to uh, enforce the labor law. Because if you enforce the labor law, the company will say, okay, I don't want to be here. The other place of China have more cheap labor, I will move to there. And also they give like tax break and also give free land, give free land to Foxconn. Like, you know, originally previously Foxconn invest in China because they make good make good deal with uh, with the local government. So so the government always very scared, I mean very uh, hesitant to to enforce labor law. Uh, so workers wherever workers go to labor a group to file to complain. I mean, the core and the government always don't stand for labor, for workers. And also for union, we know China have an official union, right? Like the, the SFTU, the All China Confederation of Trade Union, but it's a, you know, it's a yellow union, it's an official union. It just represents the interests of the state and the, and the company. They didn't represent the interests of workers. So when the worker go to find union, okay, listen, this is not my stuff, and because they always, they, they, what they're doing is that they always, uh, they, they, they perform as a welfare uh, institute, so when, during a holiday, they will distribute some oil or rice uh, to, to workers. So, so when, when, when we, you may ask the workers, why you don't find a union? I say, Who's, what's union? I don't know union. Some people will, will respond to say, I don't know union. And some people may say, union is useless. They are, they are part of the manager because the chairman of union is the manager of the company. So, so anyway, in this kind of circumstance, that's how labor and job emerge. Labor and job is not normal term in the US because we always call it worker center, but in China for labor and job. So labor and job emerge as an organization, try to perform some kind of uh, non-official law to support workers, like provide some legal aid for workers or help to workers to write some document and find complaint. Provide some kind of legal support or provide some kind of community service 
uh, like library, like after uh, like after school class for the migrant children. So perform some kind of this law. So at the beginning, labor NGO was performing some kind of service or service uh, or service provide like service oriented or legal oriented law. Like they provide some service for migrant family. They provide some legal aid for workers who facing occupational safety and health uh, problem. So and then I mean gradually in the uh, almost like 2010, because the, the, the I mean the workers become more progressive. They not just ask for uh, uh, wage. You know I mean they're facing when they're facing wage step, they want they ask for the the the, the reasonable wage. But after 2010, they ask for more. They ask for increasing higher wage because they saw. After the economic crisis in 2008, the the order the the company has increased so fast after 2008. So which means the 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 company have have earned so many benefits, but they didn't increase the wage after 2008. So workers actually asking for increasing more wage, uh, higher wage, and asking for social insurance because the insurance law was enforced in 2011, and workers realized okay we need insurance before our retire. Otherwise we 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 don't have any pension at the end. So workers have developed more offensive, more reproductive demand. So workers become more progressive, and the issues are more collective at the time. So the NGO realized, okay, we can't continue to work on just service, provide service, or provide legal aid. And then some NGO begin to work on some collective issue, like I mean, to support workers to do some credit bargaining, even we don't have law for credit bargaining. Of course, we don't have law for strike as well. But anyway. So the NGO tried to promote some agenda credit bargaining on our workers and organized strike uh, up to 2010, 2012. And it was so influential actually. Some, uh, I was involved in a strike, or I was organizing a strike with 200 workers, and we at the end we after 15 days strike and five round of credit bargaining, we, we end up have received like a, a, a two or three million uh, Chinese yuan at the end. So so it's a very powerful uh, strategy. And many is a very uh, progress practice at the time, and then this kind of practice was triggered a bigger, a big, at the first and a bigger uh, crackdown in China uh, in 2015. Uh, so many NGO in the south uh, who focus on credit bargaining were arrested, and, and all uh, four or five organizations were shut down. And so they all my friend actually, they all my friend. And they so four people at the end they were sentenced to one year one year to three year for one year and a half to three year at the end so and then there was the starting of criminalization of labor NGO labor uh, at the time from 2015 after that of course the crackdown will become severe and severe so there was a starting point and okay return to my story at the time I actually I was the IT workers. Um, what I mentioned, because at that time I was have to be an IT workers at that time. I really want to go back to Guangzhou because they, the crackdown was happening in Guangzhou, and I was in Beijing. I worked as IT workers in Guangzhou, in Beijing. I was really, really want to come back to Guangzhou to support them because I there was there was the most progressive uh, uh, organization uh, in China at that time, or most labor organization. I want to continue that job, so. But I have no. Ch I mean, it was very difficult for me. Actually, before that, because I uh, previous I was a medical student. Actually, I was studying medicine, and I was kicked out. Of, I was unable to do my lab uh, to to uh, to be a doctor because my labor activism. I was 
my country was cancelled by the hospital, so I had to be an IT worker. So I had no choice but to be Beijing as an IT worker. And at that time, was so, I mean, feel so, so bad for me. I really want to come back to Guangzhou. Anyway, okay, I really, I actually, I resigned after one year and I got back to Guangzhou. And the government tell me, and like what about the national security police tell me, you can't do anything for it. You better not to do anything for labor. Otherwise, you will like that because many of my friends at the time still in prison. And okay, and then at the time I have to doing, I have to move, I move everything to underground. So I still doing some underground, uh, private organizing on my workers to organize some strike. At the time I organized strike on my like water factory uh, workers, like they, they have a 15 day strike and then uh, they was quite down, but because there are uh, 100 police was uh, ran into a, a, a factory and arrest some of them, and then the, the, the job was spared. So anyway, so so I had to go to US at that time, go to US and study um, a, a master, and then I come back uh, to China uh, to China uh, in 2018, 2019, and then the situation become more worse because the crackdown continued going. And so at the time I started my own NGO, I, I focus on sanitation workers, the janitor, the street cleaner on the street. And so I work, I have an NGO and have my team, have four or five members in my team, and we work on sanitation workers in Guangzhou, which cover about 50,000 workers. And we're doing some more grassroots organizing, like more underground. We move everything, we have to move everything to online, actually. We can't have a physical center, like worker center, for workers to come in and provide some service. We have to move all the service to online, and also we have to move labor education to online, but we, we still organize weekly uh, dinner with work, different, different workers in different workplaces, and also we have to, we can't, we can't do any big, bigger creative strike anymore, we try to, uh, to, 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 to uh, encourage workers to do some small creative activism, like a few people get together to, to, to sign a letter, Send a letter to government, and in order to this way to survive, I always keep, uh, make joke with my my colleague, and I say, May, maybe our goal is to organize strike, but you know when we strike, which means we also will be arrested. So it's a kind of trade off, you know. Okay, you maybe have a strike, but you will you will be uh, you will be arrested. So sometimes I feel lucky because the worker didn't organize strike, and we can keep survive. But of course, at the end, we are being arrested. So I was my two, uh, my colleague. So we three people we been arrested uh, because the organization had been very influential. Even we don't register, but it was very influential in all my workers. How influential it is, I was so surprised because some day I walk in the street and I randomly talk to some sanitation worker, and they say I know you. <laughs> I didn't talk to them before, but I read our article and also in our WeChat group, we our community group online, and they say I know you. I read your article; it's so very. Is so inspiring and thank you. So, so anyway, we were arrested, and but because of so many international uh, support, uh, especially from US and also some union in the US, at that time they would support me, and so many people would sign signature uh, uh, to support us, like more than ten thousand people to sign signature to support us, and and we were released after sixteen days, and but we were in charge of we were charge of like a such uh, like a inciting a strike at that time. And we have to shut down organization at the end, and also we've been kicked out of our office. So my office was being kicked out, so I was not allowed to leave, to stay there anymore. And then I have to move everything to underground uh, up to 2020. And uh, so I keep continue to talk to, I mean, to communicate with the worker and to provide some legal support for the workers and suggestion. 
but everything have to move to I mean online or other online or other underground. And I have to go to a police station every two weeks actually. And I mean there's nothing to do actually. They just want to know where you're going, what you're doing. And I was unable to use my actually in the past four or five years I never used my real name in the Chinese social Chinese internet in order to avoid more attention because I want if you have more high profile, which means you have little space to doing some grassroots organizing. So I didn't use my real name uh, or even my nickname uh, in, in the Chinese social net, net, uh, uh, internet I, uh, for a long time. I, but there was also, I mean, it's still very uh, difficult to avoid attention because government, they, they, you know, they, they, you register any social media with your phone number, which is also connect with your ID. So they always know where you are, but they're just watching you. And but anyway, they some they also even they install the camera, uh, and like your audio recorder in my apartment. I didn't realize. And I, anyway, I find out they they install something. So anyway, so what I want to say is that the okay. So uh, so <laughs> what I want to say is that uh, the labor struggle. Uh, I, but I, I, sorry, um, yeah, the labor struggle in China is become very uh, difficult. But I want to say that the labor struggle—I did, I didn't want to say that the labor struggle had been heavily affected by the decline of labor NGO because previous in, in decades ago there may be like 100 labor NGO in China, but not just a few, maybe just less than 10 labor NGO in China. But I would say that the conversation of uh, Localization of labor NGO represent uh, the the Chinese government how the Chinese government consider uh, uh, the the civil society because they 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 not they, they not just crack down labor NGO but also, but they also uh, severely crack down some uh, the, some group of labor leader like two years ago like they they arrested a leader of delivery workers uh, who were speak out and always he, he will speak he will speak out every day for the right of for deliver workers but he was arrested uh, in 2000 in yeah in 2021 and I think he was sentenced to like about 10 months and released like in earlier this year he's a he's a real leader of uh, delivery workers he's no NGO workers but he, you also can see that the government will try to crack down some uh, some important uh, uh, like like NGO and also like important uh, labor activists uh, during the past few years, but and but but I also want to say that the, the crackdown didn't stop us actually. Even many workers and young right now many workers and also some young way educated labor organizers they still try to find some way explore some new way to engage with workers. And even in a more modern way, moderate way, even in a more self-sensual uh, way, like they don't focus on anything about lab uh, labor rights, they may just focus something on about a labor uh, lab uh, service, like provide some service or some small net build up some network, uh, some very moderate, uh, more uh, or political issues, and so they still try to do something and. But apparently, the, the entire political space is, is shrinking and the risk uh, is increasing, even they're just doing the, this kind of job. So I just want to say I wish our international friend and also our socialist comrade and can continue to support 
aim uh, to show their solidarity to Chinese grassroots labor organizers, um, so who are taking the risk to losing their liberty to fighting for labor rights. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.